Hello, and welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. If you have any questions about any of the things that I teach on the podcast, or you'd like to share your own thoughts with me, please write me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about our program and other studies that we offer, go to vbvpodcast.com. The tenth book of our New Testament, according to the traditional arrangement, is called the Book of Ephesians, or the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. However, the oldest manuscript copies of this work lack the words who are in Ephesus, which show up in most of our English translations in the latter part of chapter 1, verse 1. Those texts simply read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There were some ancient believers who knew this same book by a different name. They called it the Epistle to the Laodiceans, which was a city close to Ephesus in the same region. You may recall that both Ephesus and Laodicea had congregations which were addressed by Christ in the book of Revelation. There are other issues which could be added to these that make it unlikely that Ephesus was the primary or exclusive recipient of the letter. More likely, it was addressed generally to the congregations throughout a region, similarly to the book of Galatians. The region was that section of the Roman Empire then called Asia, and today called Turkey, at least western Turkey. Most likely after the letter had passed through the region, it came to rest in Ephesus, and it was associated with that city for the rest of Christian history. This book is one of the great masterpieces of literature in all history, and one of the greatest works of the Apostle Paul in regard to theology. I think it can be second only to the book of Romans, and it actually addresses many of the same themes as Romans with perhaps greater clarity. But like all great things, it has drawn a significant amount of controversy and disagreement, even from God-fearing and noble people. It discusses issues like predestination, the relationship between grace and works, God's plan for the future, the role of spiritual gifts in the church, and the concept of spiritual warfare, which is a subject that has been almost completely ignored for the last 200 years or more of Western church history until renewed interest and sometimes perhaps hyper-interest in very recent times. There are further discussions about the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children, and even a discussion of the issue of slavery, all of which are quite contrary to many of the social and political views that dominate our current culture. So we approach this book that we call Ephesians with a mixture of excitement and caution, confident that God has great things to teach us, but cognizant that we must be careful to hear precisely what he is saying. Ephesians is a special kind of book. It is called an epistle, and epistles were a sort of literary letter that were produced in the ancient Greco-Roman world with a regular convention or style that the Apostle Paul basically follows each time that he writes one. The common form, as seen in other epistles written by great figures of the day like Cicero or Seneca, was open with a greeting, 
which included the name of the sender and his intended audience, along with a wish of good health and the assurance of the sender's prayers. This was followed by the main body of the document, which might differ structurally depending on the subject, and then the epistle closed with a farewell and with greetings from other associations and further good wishes. If you have read many of the writings of Paul, then that form will sound very familiar to you. Now, one thing that scholars have discovered about the ancient epistles is that unlike modern letters, they were intended to be widely read as literature. And often the persons to whom they were addressed and the circumstances under which the author claimed to write were entirely fictional, the whole thing being knowingly fabricated as a literary stage on which the author could make his points in this particular fashion. The Apostle Paul was different. He wrote to real people about real situations. But it is very likely, I think, that he chose this epistolatory style to reinforce his desire that the content of his letters be read and heard in all the churches, as he often said, and not simply the ones to whom it was first addressed. See, for example, Colossians 4 and verse 15. Yet because Paul wrote to real people about real situations, it is always important to establish what we can about who exactly those people were and what those situations were. Paul had helped with the establishment of the congregation in Ephesus, first preaching there while he was returning to Antioch at the conclusion of his second missionary journey, and then coming back on his third missionary journey to continue that work. In fact, Ephesus was Paul's longest located ministry that we know of, about three years, according to Acts 20, verse 31. During this time, Paul trained other men to preach the gospel, and he dispatched them through the cities and villages of Asia so that Luke was able to say that everyone who lived there heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Acts 19, 10. Many congregations were established during this time, which Paul himself was never able to visit because his business within Ephesus proper was so time-consuming, but this was a remarkable work, not only because of the number of conversions, but because of where these people were coming from. Asia was the heart of a very particular kind of pagan devotion in the Roman Empire of that time called the imperial cult. That is, many of the people here had a special dedication to the Roman Caesar as a deity to be worshipped alongside the other gods of their pantheon. Yet Paul and his associates had come into this country and preached that there is another king, one Jesus, as they also said in Thessalonica in Acts 17.7, and Jesus was bringing about a total transformation of the world. The old order of things, with its powers and principalities, was passing away, and a new one, defined by the reign of King Jesus, had already begun. And these people believed that message, and they radically changed their lives through that belief. During Paul's Ephesian work, there's one particularly amazing account of some people who had previously practiced magical arts 
being so sincere in their turn to Jesus that they wished to utterly destroy the tools they had used to sin before, rather than selling their magical books, the value of which was calculated to be 136 years' wages, they burned them and put them out of existence lest anyone else should be led astray from glorifying Jesus in their use. Yet shortly after this, Paul had left Asia and returned to visit his countrymen in Jerusalem, and something shocking and utterly perplexing had happened when he arrived. While Paul was in the temple, some of the unbelieving Jews from Asia, perhaps some of the enemies he had made in Ephesus, brought a false accusation against him. You can read about that in Acts 21, verse 25. And though the accusation was false, Paul was arrested, and he spent time in prison, and was tried before different regional leaders for uh, even a few years, until finally, by his own insistence, Paul had been sent to Rome to appeal to Caesar. Now, this was a dangerous situation. It might have resulted in his death although that would have been terribly disproportionate for the things he was accused of. All the same, it was possible. And this would have made little sense to the Christians in Asia. Think about it. They had left the cult of Caesar to follow Jesus as king of the universe. But now Caesar had the man who seemed to be Jesus' most devoted servant, and his life was in his hands. How could this be? Was the work of God being defeated by the powers of darkness? This is the situation, and I believe the question, that the Ephesian letter was written to address. And the heart of Paul's answer lies in a little phrase of two words, which he uses copiously throughout this work. The phrase, in Christ. All of the confusion all of the perplexity, all of the apparent failure of God that is witnessed in the world is resolved in Christ. From his prison, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Christ is, of course, a title for Jesus. It's not his last name. It is a reference to his kingly and exalted position as ruler over God's creation. And Jesus is a person. Of course, we cannot literally be in or inside a person in any sense that would be reasonable here. So this is a metaphor to describe our relationship with Jesus and the impact that relationship has had on our own identity. The Bible teaches that Jesus is saving the lost people of this world by pardoning them of their sins. But that pardon is not merely designed to bring an end to the old condition of condemnation. It is to bring about a new condition of justification and life. How that works is vital for us to understand. A person is saved— that is, a person's sins are forgiven when he or she is united with Christ by faith. In a moment, we'll have more to say about what that means. But when a person is united with Christ by faith, 
The Apostle Paul says that the old identity is put to death and a new identity is given to that person, which is not proportionate to what he or she has merited for themselves by their own doings. If you hear what God has to say about the saved in Christ, and then you look at the people, if you knew anything about the life that they had lived, if you watched their conduct for very long, you might think that God's description of them is unreasonable and inappropriate. But this is because the new identity which is given to them is one that is shared with Christ himself. It is his identity shared with us because when we are united with Christ in salvation, we are incorporated into his body. This is one of the ways the Bible, especially in the writings of Paul, describes what it means to be a part of Christ's church or Christ's people. We are not merely a people who love him or follow him or worship him, but we are a people who he has received into himself. So it is no longer we who are living, but Christ lives in us. Galatians 2 and verse 20 says, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3 and verse 3. And here in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul lays out the meaning and implication of that idea with more force and clarity than perhaps any other text in the New Testament. God has given all things to Jesus, his son. This is because Jesus is the perfect model human. He is the only man to fulfill in himself the purpose for which God created humanity, to image God in this world, and thereby he has earned God's good pleasure and received for himself the earth as his inheritance. God said to Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This points back to Psalm 2, where these words are given from God to his anointed one, to the Messiah. And then God continues in that psalm, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So Jesus has, through his own life and resurrection from the dead, created a new humanity, the humanity God has always wanted. And this is how the new humanity is being spread throughout the earth, to replace the old humanity. Those from the old humanity who have sinned and failed come to Jesus by faith, and they are received into him. And in him, by virtue of their position in him, all of the blessings and favors and glories and honors that God bestowed on him because of his own perfection are in turn bestowed on them because of his marvelous grace. These blessings and favors and glories and honors are what the Apostle Paul calls all spiritual blessings here in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. What are they specifically? Well, because Christ is God's Son, when we are in Him, we are sons of God as well. Now, Christ is God's Son by nature, and perhaps also by virtue of the things He accomplished. But in Christ, we become sons of God by adoption, Ephesians 1 and verse 5. Because Christ is holy and blameless, we also are holy and blameless when we are in Him, 
he is holy and blameless by his own sinless life. We are made holy and blameless in him by the forgiveness of our sins, says Ephesians 1 and 7. Because Christ has been given an inheritance that is the fullness of all things that God will redeem when his work is finished, we have the same inheritance because we are in him. This is why Paul says we are joint heirs with Christ. Christ is the firstborn son. And in him, we have the same identity. We're not just children of God. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, says Galatians 3.26. So Jesus says that those who follow him, those who are made like him, those who are in him will have the same inheritance he has. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Because all of history is being directed by the hand of God to be summed up in Christ, Ephesians 1.10 says, we can be confident that when all things are finished, we will be on the right side, because he will be, and we are in him. In fact, perhaps the most remarkable thing of all is that Paul says, because we are in Christ now, there is a very real and meaningful sense in which we are right now sitting in heavenly places with him. He has already won the victory, and if we are in him, we have also. Now think of how this would resonate with Paul's original audience. They have become perhaps shaken in their faith since Christ's beloved servant was given over into the hands of Caesar. Paul indicates this in chapter 3 when he is concerned that they will be distressed by his suffering. And he says, I don't want you to be distressed. I want you to realize it's for your glory. But how could they think that way? Paul is under arrest, and while he is still preaching, his circumstances, they just don't seem to line up with someone who was highly favored and beloved by the ruler over the kings of the earth and the God of heaven. Yet Paul simply instructs that when we begin to wonder like that, we shift our perspective from Paul in prison to Paul in Christ. And indeed, that changes everything. Paul has joy and peace and comfort, not because of his present circumstances on earth, but because he is in Christ in heavenly places. Paul has confidence and boldness, and he is walking in the victory of God, not because of his present circumstances on earth, but because he is in Christ. And Christ has already defeated death in himself. It is therefore only a matter of time until the same victory is fully shared and experienced by all who are in him. The Christian life is a life of victorious faith. And those two terms are coessential. It is a life of faith and not sight because it claims today an identity and a position that is given to us from another, and at the present time, it is not yet fulfilled in our own experience here on earth in this life, but it will be, and we know that it will be, because it has already been fulfilled in Him, and we are in Him. So it is also a victorious life, a life of joy and peace and justification before God. No matter what earthly circumstances may come, 
Who is in Christ? We've read and stated that we are united with Christ by faith. Yet in Paul's writings, faith is more complex in its meaning than in many modern religious discussions. It is not merely a head knowledge about Jesus or a heart feeling toward him. It certainly includes knowledge of Jesus. It includes a personal trust in him and turning to him. But it also includes a life of active loyalty manifest in the relentless pursuit of his will in all things, to know it and to do it. And that life begins with baptism in water. At that time, sins are pardoned. The Holy Spirit is given, and union with Christ is actualized. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 3, 26-27, but his words here are in perfect harmony with what he has said and will continue to say in Ephesians. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.